So how many points do you think you have? Uh, points? Yeah, like like points, you know, getting into a good place when you die. Oh, uh, oh, um, okay. So, uh, what's the maximum number and what's the minimum number that, that I could have? Oh, okay. Let's say anywhere from negative one million to positive one million. <laughs> why couldn't it's a just small be scale? Why couldn't it just be ten? Negative ten. Okay. Uh, is there like a medium kind of? Is there? Is there, <laughs> like, is there a medium place? Can I just say zero? I always knew you should be Catholic. Okay. I, is, oh, that's a purgatory joke. I get it. I, I, I Maybe I should. My great-grandfather was an orangeman in Ireland, though, so Oh, tough. okay. Just guesstimate. Honestly, I'm going to say maybe negative 10 points out of a million. Ouch. This is Weird Religion, a podcast for people who know religion is weird, but love it anyway. I'm your host, Brian Doak. I'm an author, professor, biblical scholar, and I've never met a famous person in my entire life. And I'm your host, Leah Payne. I'm a professor, historian, author, and I saw Tanya Harding ice skate before the 1994 Olympics. What? We're Oregon girls. Today we're talking about the hit NBC TV series, The Good Place. One very less than mediocre woman accidentally ends up in the good place instead of the bad place. Or does she? In this TV show, The Afterlife, is a carefully curated, calculated, and designed space that reveals the truth about a person's moral character. We talk about traditional notions of the afterlife, hellfire, the mark of the beast, and whether it's impossible to escape a point system in our afterlife thinking. And also why it is so difficult in our cultural moment to talk about what happens when you die without horror or satire. Join us. Join us. I don't know. So what about you about the point thing? Like, would you find it easy to assess your, your life in terms of points for oh. your belonging in, in the good place or or the other place? You know, you would think that I'd be able to do that pretty well. And I'm sure you would think this too, because we are evo- we are evaluated on a point scale like twice a year, every year, right? <laughs> the, the dreaded evaluations. We do teaching evaluations, which I know they are Research demonstrates that they are completely ineffective they're totally when it fake. comes to evaluating whether or not a student learned. Like, they're, they're totally, totally fake. No, they're fake. They're they're demonstrably sociologically sexist, yes. racist. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Students, I mean, I get students, students lie on them all the time. They they invent information that has comment, nothing to do with the class. They comment on my clothes, probably uh, not as much your clothes. You know, um, yeah, it's ridiculous. They don't right. uh, they don't help, but. Um, so I often will feel unjustly evaluated. Oh, you of know? course. Who feels like they're evaluated in any aspect of their life in a totally just way? If you get evaluated, no matter what your job is out there, if you get performance reviewed and it's like really, really good, you're happy, right? But there's part of you that maybe thinks, no, that they're going to find out that like I'm actually not doing my job. And if you get rated really badly, you're like, wait this, a minute. This is nonsense. It's not fair. So it's like evaluation is always wrong. Yeah. And I think that I, I don't think that I trust myself to evaluate myself. And isn't that one of the major plot points of The Good Place? Yeah. I mean, there, there's just a problem about assessing yourself in a cosmic way like this. Like, how can you, how could you honestly do it? Like, if you said, if you thought it was good and it's, it's like you're, t- like even you asking, like, how would you, what point? Rating would you give yourself? It's so awkward because like, what am I supposed to say? Like, oh, pretty much 900,000 out of a million. Yeah. Or like, oh, then you could like flagellate yourself. Like, oh, negative, negative 1 million. Like, I'm the worst. But it's like, no, I clearly don't think that about myself. Well, and one of the characters, so 
dear listeners, as you know, we're talking about The Good Place. Mm. And um, one of the—this th- idea that there is an afterlife and that your place in the afterlife is determined by this infinite moral calculation that determines whether or not you're someone who belongs in the good place or mm. the bad place. And for, you know, shorthand theological terms, heaven or hell— and I think that uh, one of the characters, Tahani, mm-hmm. uh, illustrates the problem with doing that kind of, you know, obsessive checking of right. your numbers. You're never where you think you ought to be. You're never, you know, you're kind of where you absolutely are scared to be. Totally. It's a ridiculous scenario. It's very funny on yeah, the show. <laughs> and we've totally, and other, other television shows like Black Mirror in a, in a much darker way have toyed with this idea of like ratings. Like, isn't there this Black Mirror episode about like you're constantly being oh, rated? Yeah. The one on and, social like, media. Yeah. So it's like, I think technology has created in social media and blah, blah, blah has created like this hyper evaluative world or even Yelp. I mean, Yelp is a little bit of an old timer in the social media landscape, yeah. but Yelp is like a classic example of like, can you trust the ratings? Who's giving these ratings? Everything's being rated. Well, you can trust my ratings. Oh, okay. I'm a Yelper. Are you? What's your username on Yelp? Oh, I'm not going to tell you. <laughs> I'm not going to tell anyway. But um, a friend of mine actually have a sort of a Yelp friendship where we will send each other our a best Yelp. Yelp ship? Yeah, yeah. We, we send each other our best Yelp reviews. Uh-huh. She kind of goes for like the poetic uh-huh. and I go for like the stark. It's oh. almost like a haiku. You, you know, know like- I, I went, I deleted my Yelp profile and all my reviews. You did? I did. Do you know why I did it? I did it because I had given, okay, there was a Mexican restaurant in Boston when we lived in Boston and I gave them a really bad review and it was poor service and the food is bad and everything. But Uh afterward I was like, you know, that's really unfair. I should go there at least two or three times. And who knows, this is probably like a small family business and I'm trashing them and now they're losing money. And I delete, I just felt wrong because it was like, I just felt like I didn't know what the implications of it would be. It's probably the most moral I've ever been. That is- In my life. That's very sweet. It's probably That's the, very empathetic. It's probably the sweetest thing I've ever done. It was a really rare moment. I've never done anything <laughs> like it before or since. Well, but. I don't really have an equivalent except for the fact that I always try and do two good Yelp reviews for every one oh, bad one. Oh, okay. So you're you're playing the cosmic game of the good place. I am. You're trying totally to balance out. You, who do you think is watching this game? Uh, Who's this for? Who's the this Yelp show? gods. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, it's just I, like you just you, you you're compelled. You mm-hmm. have to make sure that the ratings and the system is is correct. And I mean the show is funny too because it takes you into kind of like the back room of the calculations and all of the characters who are involved in making these calculations. And of course it's kind of a goofy world where you realize maybe you can't you can't trust the afterlife calculators and so on. That's right. Why do you think people love this show so much? It's been a huge hit. All of my students watch it. Like, Oh, do they really? Oh, yeah. Do you, think, do you think it's just a theology nerd thing or do you think it has a broader appeal? I think it must have a broader appeal. But to me, one of the appealing qualities is that it takes something that's universal to the human experience, this kind of anxiety about what happens when you die. Mm-hmm. And then it, or at least nearly universal human experience. Mm-hmm. And then it it takes like that, equally nearly universal experience about of scorekeeping and then just puts all of it in an absurd (laughs) context where you have like ted danson who is hilarious his most lovable role role ever probably (laughs) yeah as since sam in cheers maybe oh right well he maybe he that's just it's just he's just like that i don't know i don't know but um you know it it takes like all these things that all of us do on a day-to-day basis and then puts it in this absurd setting. That's what right. I think the key is. What do you think? Well, 
for, okay, the first thing that got me hooked on the show was in the pilot. This is not really a spoiler. I guess we're kind of doing spoilers and all these things. Oh, yes. Yeah, it's your fault if you haven't watched The Good Place at this yes, point. I mean, you, you owe it to yourself. You know the basic premise at this point. But um, in the, I think it's in the first episode when um, when she comes, the main character. What's her name in the Eleanor. show? Eleanor. Eleanor. Mm-hmm. When Eleanor Shellstrop comes to the um, the place where she comes to, let's say, um, there's like this video then that's played where it's like the good life or the good place is a place where, you know, we've calculated your deeds and da, 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 da. And it reminded me of being a kid in church and hearing sermons or like messages so many times that were kind of like, like these messages kind of went like this, you know, every good deed that you do, you can't just stack good deeds on one on top of the other and try to calculate how to please God in the right way. And that's not the way to the afterlife. And that's not the way into God's heart. Right, you know? right, right. Like that kind of stuff, I think is like, that's a classic evangelical trope of preaching to say, this is not how heaven works. It's, you know, it's grace. It's the thief on the cross who comes and says, you know, remember me despite the life I've lived. And Jesus says, today you'll be with me this day in paradise. Like that's the model, not this idea that you can rank up points. So I was thinking like, is this is this an instantiation of that kind of, or a satire on that kind of message? I don't know if the show's writers are that theologically savvy or if they're just playing with a basic idea of what people think the afterlife is supposed to be like. In other words, points. Yeah, it's really funny that you bring that up because I definitely think that they have philosophers who are consulting, yeah, right? Because one of the joys um, as a nerd professional nerd one of the great joys of this show is that i mean when l when have you ever heard john stuart mill camus philippa foot named and then like in a paragraph their you know major contribution to moral philosophy said in like a funny quirky show but i, I to your point about the evangelical stuff in some ways, does I that think make sense? Shows, what I was saying, like, yeah. does that you know the message and so on? Yeah, I think it shows like how maybe inescapable. Even though you know evangelicals tend to be really crucicentric, and they're like the cross, everything happens here. It is you know right. like completely upending our thoughts. But I don't know. Can you actually do that? No, and I don't think no. You can't. It's just it seems natural. Well, okay. So as a biblical scholar, I have a question for you. Yeah. I mean, how do you? frame or how how does the bible or scholarship about biblical communities frame this question like the the point system <laughs> well okay so one one thing that came to mind and it, and it really happened in season 3 um in the first couple of episodes of season 3 yeah was this idea spoiler alert okay if you're still working your way through season 2 okay you can just go blank for yeah, a minute sorry about but, that guys like they find out at one point that basically in like 500 years, no one has made it into the good place. And they're like, wait, why? What has happened? Because there's this plot twist where they think they're in the good place, but they're actually not. Okay, that's that's one of the early spoilers. That you actually, just, it's so fun. It's like Sartre, hell is other people. Oh, it's perfect. Yeah. It's perfect. So, so they find out not only are they not in the good place, but no one has been in the good place. And then there's the search for the reason why. Why has no one made it into the good place? Well, and this is what, this is where it rang all these bells for me, just personally, but also I thought of this particular biblical passage. It's because life has become so complicated in the modern era Mm. that every choice that we make has these ripple effects that we cannot possibly imagine. So like you buy a t-shirt, that should just be neutral on the point scale. You shouldn't go to hell or heaven based on a t-shirt. Oh, but wait, but who was making the t-shirt and who was being paid fairly and who had medical insurance and who didn't. And and, And I was thinking of this passage, which I think 
is a kind of beloved and feared passage in the book of Revelation, particularly Revelation chapter 13, this idea of the mark of the beast. Oh, um, yes, I love that. Yeah, so I've, and I've, got, I've got a Bible here, as one often does with one. Um, and it's, it, Revelation 13 begins with this idea of a dragon that stood on the shore of the sea, and I saw a beast coming out of the sea, and all this kind of stuff is happening. Um, you know, and, and all this, you know, it's just like a wild scene. It was given power to the beast to wage war and all inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast. All whose name, all whose names have not been written in the lamb's book of life. Um, whoever has ears, let him hear this calls for patient endurance. And then comes this, this famous number, right? Um, the second beast was given power to give breath to the image of the first beast. This is like sci-fi fantasy right here. Yeah, it's awesome. So that the image could speak and cause all who refused to worship the image to be killed. It also forced all people, great and small, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hands or on their foreheads so that they could not buy or sell unless they had the mark, which is the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the person who has insight calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man. That number is 666. Okay, so now a lot of like the kind of American child of the 80s, 90s evangelical imagination has, you know, all kinds of speculation about like a one world government. Russia. Russia getting branded with you know, something on your actual literal wrist or your head. Or having to use a credit card. That's what I was Having to use a credit card, right? Like what is, and and that's the mark of the beast. And Mm -hmm. it's kind of like this literal singular instantiation of this beast-like character on earth. Yeah. The way I've come to think of this passage, just personally, like as a reader of the Bible, and, and what I think to me is actually more haunting than that very haunting interpretation which is haunting enough on its on its own, this idea that there would be a beast. And, yeah, oh. yeah, it's terrifying. The thing that became more terrifying to me some years ago in studying this and thinking about this passage is the idea that this is a much more universal kind of problem. Hmm. Like the idea that what if you live like Christians did who first received the book of Revelation in a Roman empire where elements like emperor worship would have been very right. difficult to avoid for a lot of people, especially mm. in the Eastern part of the empire, like around Israel and that kind of part of the Mediterranean where the emperor worship, the emperor cult of the Roman emperor was a much more right. live and active sort of thing. In, in the West, Western part of the empire, they kind of knew it was all a sham. Like, oh geez, we're worshiping the emperor. Ha ha. But I mean, people in, in, in the biblical world were, you know, it was like, it was a much more living and active idea. And so- Was it basically like the further you get away from actually seeing yeah, Caesar? I think that so. That makes Sense. I think so. That makes sense. Yeah, and so this is at least what New Testament scholars have have said about the way that this dynamic wor- dynamic works. So I'm thinking to myself, like you read this passage and you're like, wait a minute, like what if you imagined yourself like an early Christian, say in the first century, living in a world where you couldn't even go to the marketplace without somehow participating in what they Ooh, saw as idolatry. This immoral system. This immoral basically. system. And like, what if I thought of myself on the terms of the good place or on the terms of this passage, not as like waiting for some secret, obviously evil figure to come and do this like really obviously evil thing, which would be so obvious and, and that it would almost make the moral choice simpler. What if it was way more complicated and, and way more difficult, namely that I'm actually living in this world now, hmm. that we've all been living in this world for quite some time in which you can't really buy or sell without contributing to some kind of very difficult like oppression. Like everything that you do is like feeding into some kind of system or governmental system or colonialism. Like you can just keep piling this stuff up.
mean, one question that kind of a counter question, I guess I have to mm. that is, I mean, when has it not been that way? Because you're using an example from the first century right. when it was, things were obviously yeah. simpler compared to sure. our lives, but, and yet, you know, people are dealing with That's the true. exact same. That's true. I think, I don't know. It's, it's really interesting because the show, I think on the show, they use the example of a tomato. You buy a tomato. Yes, and, yes, you know, yes, that's right. Um, but, uh, it, which is, I, I've, I taught um, ethics a couple of times. It's not my specialty, but you ethics know. are not my specialty. Quote Leah Payne. <laughs> <laughs> the discipline, yes, the, yes, the yes. Uh, traditional discipline, and which actually teaching a class that is not in your wheelhouse is is funner than you think it would be. Totally. But anyway, um, I you become a better that, teacher when you teach out of your wheelhouse totally, because totally. you have to actually understand it for other people and for yourself at the same time. Whereas in a specialist world, yeah. Yeah. So the students, I think, were really taken with this idea that, um, you know, the, the the complexity of this world, but it's sort of, isn't that just kind of foundational to the human experience? Like, we never yeah. really know who we're hurting with our actions. Right. Well, that, that would make the passage much more universal even. I mean, I'm just personalizing it, but I think that that's that idea that it's, that morality is just not so clear. Right. That it, and you, I mean, just try to imagine, oh, listener, or any of us, imagine the moment where you thought you did the greatest good you've ever done. What if it turned out on some cosmic scale, the greatest good thing you've ever done was actually a net loss? Yeah, morally. like what if you save a baby and the baby turned out to be Adolf Hitler or something? To choose an on-the-nose <laughs> example. Yeah, I mean, or, you know, any number of things like that. It, like it, it it throws you, I think it can throw you into like an existential kind of despair, but then also a kind of freedom, which the characters seem to find oh on the show gosh. in a way. Yeah. Where they can, it's like they despair, but then they're off on like the zany adventure and it's like, now the real meaning is being made. I'm sure that's the way it'll all end. Like, oh, we were just all friends after all and the cosmos has worked itself out. I mean, it's a sitcom after yeah. all. Yeah, well, I, I thought that one of the meta questions to me well first off the episode where um the ted dancing character michael right yeah he goes through an existential crisis and then he goes oh, yeah. through a midlife crisis yep. it's so funny love it but anyway um i think I, I i sort of figured that the the big question is what does it mean to be human like are humans good or bad mm -hmm. and they seem to be saying i think they want to say that there's good in there yeah. Do you think? I mean, that totally. seems to be the argument of the show. No, totally. Because if they're in the good place, but it's actually the bad place, but they get out of it by essentially being- Working together. Just like a really good version of what it means to be a human friend to another human. Um, that's that. Yeah. So that's I, enough. I, I think it's a very positive kind of anthropological statement. The show is ultimately not, not bad at all. It makes the idea of an actual afterlife or angels and demons and gods look stupid. If anything, it makes humans look very good. Yeah. I think so. In a way. I, as a scholar of American religious life and movements, I mean, what what kind of bells were ringing in your head as you watched the show? <sighs> you know, it's funny because when I was watching it, I was like, I need to pay attention to just the vision of the afterlife because mm -hmm. lots of different American Christian-ish movements come up with different versions right. um, of what happens when you die. Like, you know, the kind of traditional fundamentalist movement version is a lot more like they they usually have a little bit more of detail when it comes to the hell part so there's mm -hmm. like um it, i don't know it brought to mind those 
old-timey tracks where there's, like, somebody who's burning in hell, and it's like, oh, if I would have only heard from my high school friend, you know? Right, like, right. <laughs> that I, kind of thing. I received those tracks, I remember. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, dispensationalists, too, have really interesting, like, detailed versions of when, like, a certain hellish experience is going to happen, and mm. there's, like, maps and stuff. Then you have groups like the LDS Church or the— commonly known as a Mormons, they have almost no idea of hell. I mean, it's like very difficult to get there. Oh, really? I didn't know that. Yeah. And so one of the funny or one of the interesting things is it all it all sort of depends on what you think human will is capable of doing, I think. Mm. So the LDSers have a really like very expansive sense of human freedom, like mm -hmm. that humans are free to do things. And the idea is that many of them will choose the right. You know, I don't mm -hmm. know if you are very familiar with the culture, but there's like I'm a whole not. choose the right rings. It's kind of like the Mormon version of purity rings. Oh. Um, anyway, and so then like then traditions that have a very expansive and imaginative view of hell oftentimes will have this idea that humans don't have very much will. Uh -huh. So like Jonathan Edwards, the really famous American revivalist and reform mm -hmm. guy, he had this idea of the afterlife that humans are, you know, that God predestines people to, right. to heaven and to hell. He actually wrote a lot about heaven, but we don't remember that as much. Mm -hmm. um, he wrote the very famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And if you've taken oh, yeah. any kind of American literature class, you've oh, probably yeah. read that sermon. And oh, he yeah. talks about like a spider dangling yes, over a fire. Yes, I was, was going like, to mention the dangling. Like for you. Yes, the dangling. I remember yeah. that from my freshman English course. Yeah, yeah. So I think that it's kind of, it's a shame because actually he wrote quite beautifully about heaven as well. But there's, there's this vision, like a really extraordinary imaginative vision. And one of the things that I really like about The Good Place mm -hmm. is it, it introduces the idea, and it's sort of, I can't believe I'm bringing this up, but it's sort of like C.S. Lewis's The Great Divorce. Oh, yeah. Where hell isn't as much about like this, this really on-the-nose, you know, obvious mm -hmm. torture and suffering, although they make reference to that during yeah. uh, many times in The Good Place. They do. But what if hell is like just slight irritations? <laughs> You know, like, or this kind of In other of words, like, my life right now, just yeah. going on. Or unrequited love or, uh, you know, some sort of like some expectation that's disappointed. Mm -hmm. I don't know. What do you me. think? What do you think about this? Let me put you on the spot as, okay. a, as an American religious historian. Okay. How would you respond to this statement? I won't say where this statement comes from. If it's me, if it's a conversation I have with a friend, just uh -oh. out of the void. Okay. Okay. And the statement would be, what's your reaction to this statement? People who say they believe in a literal, conscious, eternal torment of hell are basically, they may want to believe that, but they actually don't. Because if people believe that, they'd be like grabbing everybody they see by the lapel and absolutely just going bonkers, trying to convince them to do whatever they had to do, not to go to that hell. But in fact, nobody does that. And there are way more people who claim to believe in that who actually would live any aspect of their lives as though they believe that. Okay, well, I think I can appreciate the logic of that, mm. but there are lots of things that we do all the time. Mm -hmm that have dire consequences and we're super relaxed about. So for example, like we know 
that heart disease is a major crisis, but people are eating corn dogs all the live long day. Doesn't right? stop me. Exactly. But what does that say though? Okay, to the logic of it though, what does that say? It says that I actually don't believe those messages. I don't believe in science. I don't believe that stuff. I say I do, but I don't because I will just keep oh, eating the corn dog. Okay, well, that's actually a really interesting point because it gets at one of the other themes, I think, which is how do you know like what you believe to be morally right? Mm-hmm. And the show has this interesting interplay between like what you do mm-hmm. and what you say that you believe. Right. So I think you seem to be coming from the perspective or your friend, whoever this Just is. Just this disembodied this, voice. This disembodied voice seems to be coming from the perspective that practices our beliefs, right? Like that, right. that what you believe is only made manifest in what you do. In a certain way, it, depending on how serious it was. Right. Like, like if I thought an asteroid was coming toward Earth and I would die in 24 hours, there there are very specific things I would do and say, and I'd probably be oh, totally sure. emotionally unhinged. <laughs> but like you can't. We would definitely be with our families. We would not. We would not be doing now. this. Nope. Yeah. My last 24 no hours of life. We love this. I'm going to podcast in my last 24 hours of life. <laughs> Just pretend. Goodbye. You know, sweet but like world. there'd be something you would do if it's that extreme. So the idea is, if you really think your points on Earth or whatever kind of system you want to yeah. put in there would really be leading to hell. I mean. We we definitely wouldn't be podcasting. We'd be like we'd out be, there with sandwich boards, man. We'd be we that's exactly the point. And yeah. so yes, I get the I get the difference between assuming that practice, you know. But but some things would be hard. It'd be hard not to see that 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 collapse between practice and belief if it was extreme enough. Well, I think that brings a really interesting moral question, which is what is our duty to the people um, they they use in the, the Good Place, they use Plato's famous illustration of the cave right. a lot. Like, what is yes. our duty to the cave dwellers, yeah, right? Yeah, exactly. So. I don't know. It's hard to know. I guess that's the point of the show too, at this, at, at least where I've kind of, I, I've just gotten a few episodes into season three. That's where yeah. I am. So it's like, I haven't seen how this has been resolved. Maybe it hasn't been totally resolved yet. I don't know. I, I wonder, just as a bigger question here, yeah. do you think it's just become impossible in our culture today to think about the afterlife in a serious way. I mean, I, I'm thinking back to our our conversations in season one. We did that episode on Black Mirror. I forgot what that was mm-hmm. called, but whatever that episode was, go find it listeners. Yeah. It, was, it was there in season one. But this idea like Black Mirror has this very dystopian idea of the afterlife. It's always, I mean, dying and being in an afterlife scenario, it's an AI nightmare. Of right, some kind. right. And now this show takes it in a really different kind of goofy direction where the afterlife is kind of zany and kind of fun, yeah. but also like very unrealistic in some ways, maybe. I mean, is the afterlife just one of these topics that, I don't know, just it's it's impossible for us to discuss in a coherent way because it's so mysterious or? I wonder, I wonder if like, Part of me wonders if the further we get away from dealing with death in a really tactile way, like mm. like in the medieval world, a lot of Christian theology about life and death was born out of like plagues, right. famines, wars, you know, like people, death and childbirth, like people were dying all the time everywhere. Death was just like such a regular part of life. Right. And I wonder if in our technical culture where medical technology seems to distance our, ourselves, you know, from the reality of death, right. that we just have a hard time dealing with it. And to me, I, and I, then I want to hear what you think about yeah. this, but to me, The Good Place is a really interesting show and really funny because it uses humor. Like it's, there are a ton of jokes about that basically they equate hell or the bad place to things that fall outside of middle-class respectability. Like, okay, there's this one line that I wrote down that I thought was so funny. Sean, who's like this 
I don't know, he's bad like a, guy, yeah, one of the big yeah, bads. Yeah. Yeah, 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 he has this he has this one line where he's he's proving that the human race is terrible and doomed. He goes, <laughs> Sean says, humans are terrible. Limp biscuit, slavery. <laughs> The prosecution rests. So they're basically saying like the institution of slavery and Limp Biscuit, which I think would probably fall outside of the realm of middle class respectability. There's tons of other jokes like that. Like yeah, yeah, if yeah. you have a personalized license plate, if you've ever right. paid to see the Red Hot Chili Pepper. <laughs> anyway, um, but I think I wonder if humor is is maybe one of the best ways to deal with our cultural discomfort with that. What do you think? Yeah, I think your point about losing touch with death is is really insightful. It makes me think in in the um there's a, a scholar named Mark Laramore whose whose reader I use when I teach theodicy or the problem of evil and he says in his introductory essay I think it's called Introduction Approaching Evil or something like that in his reader which is a, an anthology of various texts on on this topic of how to deal with evil and pain and suffering and how philosophers talked about it. And he says something like, you know, our obsession with the problem of evil as like a you know this great cosmic problem it really is just about the fact that we've become so comfortable mm. in our lives like back in the medieval period what could you really have expected to really happen just pain and death and suffering and you know the idea that this life was just a fleeting cruel joke was pretty common because it definitely seemed to be that way and if you were going to die at age 39 you know um after you know a life filled with pain and broken teeth and separated shoulders and things like that that could never be fixed. Mm. The idea of, you know, an afterlife would be a very appealing kind of idea. Whereas we're like living like in a kind of bizarre, like compared to what they experienced, a kind of like ongoing afterlife heaven now. And I know that of course that's not taking into consideration the huge swaths of suffering on earth. Right. But you know, if you're like an educated upper middle class kind of person who's just like living life and crushing it and right. watching TV and talking about the good place on a podcast, you know, <laughs> Us, like basically. you're, it's like what, what it, you can't imagine anything even better than this. You can imagine it, but it would only be silly or you could imagine losing this, which would be the dystopian side. Right. You know, it's funny. Okay. You heard it here, friends. I think that this, this show and all the comments that you just said yeah. are an argument for why um, I think that Protestants could, they would do well to learn from the Catholics and their doctrine of purgatory. Oh yeah, how because, so? Because, well, because purgatory deals with like the temporal qualities of sin and holiness mm -hmm. and God. And so the idea of purgatory is that this life could be cut short and you may not have all of the quirks and the impurities burned away from you. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. <laughs> and so rather than ending up necessarily in the bad place, you could potentially have like the medium place, which is a little different from the medium place in the in the good place. Not quite as comfortable as the medium place in right. the good place. But it would allow you um, this this space. And I think that that's in many ways kind of the vision of the show, The Good Place for your moral betterment, right? right? Not just moral, but... I think that's a really appealing idea. Like, I'd like to have, back to the original question, yeah. like, how many points? I'd just like to be put in a situation where I could at least see more clearly what the situation is and do some better work then. Same. Hey, thanks for listening, weirdos. We love all our weirdos, near and far. For extras and extra nerdy Easter eggs on subjects covered in this episode, don't forget to click on the hyperlinks in each episode's description on our website, weirdreligion.com. And join our social media conversations about religion and pop culture on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Weird Religion. And we're YouTubing now, so find us on YouTube. YouTube us. 
(laughs) (laughs) These episodes were produced at Stone Bear Studios, engineered by Luke DiLorenzo and executive produced by Troy Wellstad. Our theme music is by Cassie Blum and our album artwork by John Williams. A special shout out to Portland Seminary for sponsoring the season and to trigger the studio dog. When you podcast, podcast with us. Bye.